Welcome to Big Papa Rob's Podcast Story Rewind. I'm Big Papa Rob. Here I rewind the story of a person, place, or thing and tell you where it originated from. Today's story will be a little different than normal. This is the continuation of a four-part series. This is the story about one of the worst industrial accidents in the United States history. This is an explosion that killed at least 581 people. 113 of them were classified as missing and left 5,000 people injured. This is the third story of a series of related tragic work-related incidents that led to the states and eventually our government to enact laws to protect the American worker. Let's rewind this story to its earliest beginnings. The cargo ship responsible for this tragic explosion was built in 1942 as a Liberty ship. In case you didn't know, a Liberty ship was a class of cargo ship built in the United States during World War II under the Emergency Shipbuilding Program. This ship was named the SS Benjamin R. Curtis and served in the Pacific Theater during the war to deliver supplies. After the war, the ship was taken out of service and docked in Philadelphia. In January of 1947, the SS Benjamin R. Curtis was sold to the French government and renamed SS Grand Camp. SS Grand Camp made her maiden voyage on January 11, 1947, carrying a cargo of coal from Newport News, Virginia, to France. February 4, 1947, the SS Grand Camp set sail from Belgium for South America, Caribbean, and Gulf ports. She arrived in Texas City, Texas on April 11, 1947. She docked at Pier O to load 2,700 tons of fertilizer-grade ammonium nitrate. Upon her arrival, she was also carrying twine, peanuts, tobacco, some small arms ammunition, engineering equipment, and cotton. Her main cargo was going to be the ammonium nitrate. Texas City, Texas is located on the Texas Gulf Coast in Galveston County, about 14 miles north of the city of Galveston and 40 miles south of Houston. The city was settled in the 1830s and was incorporated as a city in 1911. The city founders saw the location as a potential shipping port and started development of the shipping hubs for crops and goods by rail and by sea. By the 1840s, the city experienced tremendous growth, largely due to the expansion of its chemical and petroleum industries during World War II. By 1947, the population had reached about 16,000 residents. On the morning of April 16, 1947, the ship's crew was preparing to finish loading the ammonium nitrate fertilizer. At about 8 a.m., crew members noticed smoke in the cargo area, where 2,300 tons of the fertilizer had already been stowed and was located. 
The crew tried to use a gallon jug of water and two fire extinguishers to extinguish the source of the smoke, but it didn't work. The cargo hold began filling with smoke, and the captain of the ship ordered the crew to leave the hold. The captain didn't want to use water to extinguish the fire because he wasn't, didn't want to damage the cargo. He ordered all hatches sealed and the hold to be filled with steam to smother the fire. At this point in history, ammonium nitrate really wasn't considered a ha hazardous by most people. They also didn't know or understand the dangers that can be caused by introducing steam and intense heat to ammonium nitrate. At 8.30 a.m., the steam pressure became so great that it blew the hatches off the cargo hold. A yellow-orange smoke began to billow out. It's believed that the smoke and the heat converted ammonium nitrate to nitrous oxide. This would explain the yellow-orange smoke that rose above the hold. Although fires were not uncommon at the port, which would draw people to come see the action at the port, most people had never seen this kind of smoke rise from the area. This drew more attention and more spectators. The Texas City Volunteer Fire Department and the Republic Oil Refinery Company firefighting team responded to the fire. The firefighters and the spectators along the shoreline believed that they were at a safe distance from the cargo ship. At 9.12 a.m., the ammonium nitrate reached an explosive threshold from the combination of heat and pressure. When it detonated, it caused a massive destruction of everything within 2,000 feet. This caused a 15-foot tidal wave and a shock wave that leveled 1,000 buildings, including the chemical plant, killing 145 of the 450 workers in the plant alone. All the crew aboard the Grand Camp perished. 27 of the 28 men fire department were killed, totaling 567 people at this point. It was reported that the windows in Houston, 40 miles away, were shattered, and people in Louisiana felt the shock 250 miles away. The blasts registered on a seismograph as far away as Denver, Colorado. Most of the Texas City Terminal Railways warehouses along the dock were a complete loss at the time of the Grand Camp's explosion. There were only two additional vessels docked in the port, the SS High Flyer and the Wilson B. Keene. Both were C-2 cargo ships similar to the Grand Camp. The intensity of the blast sent shrapnel tearing into the surrounding area. Flaming debris ignited giant tanks full of oil and chemicals stored at the refineries, causing secondary fires and smaller explosions. A barge anchored in the port was lifted out of the water by force of the explosion and landed 100 feet away on shore. The explosion had also caused the ship High Flyer to become undocked, and it drifted across the harbor, coming to rest against SS Wilson B. Keene. The High Flyer was loaded with 1,000 tons of ammonium nitrate and 2,000 tons of sulfur. One thing to note, if ammonium nitrate and sulfur mixes, it becomes volatile. They were stored in separate holds at the time. The crew of the High Flyer had stayed aboard the ship until the smoke of the burning oil in the harbor forced them to leave. Later that afternoon, two men reboarded the ship to search for injured crew members. They saw that the cargo was ablaze on the ship and reported it to someone on the harbor front. Unfortunately, 
No one responded to the alert at the time, probably due to the many fires and rescues that were already being done. The Texas city mayor appointed railway company vice president Swede Sandberg to oversee the relief efforts following the initial blast. When Sandberg was finally alerted about the fire aboard the high flyer around 11 p.m., tugboats attempted to pull the ship away from dock but were unable to get the ship to move. They gave up attempts about 1 a.m. on April 17th and fled the area. At 1.10 a.m. on April 17th, the high flyer's ammonium nitrate exploded, killing at least two people and causing even more damage to the dock and demolished the SS Wilson B. King. This blast was said to be worse than the one of the Grand Camps explosion because the second blast was anticipated by nearly everyone present. Everyone had been removed from the area. This explosion added to the fires that had already been caused by the first explosion. KTHT News from Houston was on site at the time of the second explosion reporting live, and they said, Here comes another explosion. You have just heard it. The sky is like a broad daylight. The first explosion left Texas City without emergency services, destroying all of its firefighting equipment and knocking out water and power. At the time of the explosion, phone services were not working because of the telephone operator strike. When operators learned of the accident, they quickly went back to work, but the strike caused initial delays in coordinating rescue efforts. The surrounding community responded once word got out after the first explosion. The cities of Galveston, Houston, and San Antonio sent policemen to assist the city police force in maintaining order in the city. The U.S. Army flew in blood plasma, gas masks, food, and other supplies and set up temporary housing for the survivors at Camp Wallace and Hitchcock. The Red Cross, Salvation Army, and the Boy and Girl Scouts of America sent teams of volunteers to provide first aid, food, water, and comfort to the city residents. There was no operational hospital in Texas City at the time of the disaster, so many volunteers converted City Hall and the Chamber of Commerce buildings into a makeshift infirmity. Many of the wounded were evacuated to John C. Lee Hospital in Galveston and the hospital at Fort Crockett and hospitals in Houston. The high school gym was converted into a temporary morgue. A local garage was used as an embalming room. A number of morticians and volunteers offered their services in the aftermath. 150 embalmers worked on the bodies in the garage. Four students from the local dental school were called in to aid with identifying the dead through dental records. The work to identify the bodies continued through mid-June of 1947. It was estimated 405 bodies were identified, 63 were never identified, and 113 people were classified as missing because the bodies were never found. Total 581 died in this horrific industrial disaster. April 19, 1947, the Texas Ministerial Alliance held a non-denominational memorial service for the victims 
of the blast at the high school football stadium. Over a thousand people attended the service. Later, as churches and funeral homes around the city began to recover, families held individual funerals and burials for their loved ones. Another memorial was held on May 30th at the fire station to remember the 27 firemen who lost their lives in the explosion. On June 22nd, the city conducted funeral services for those remains that couldn't be identified. 63 slate gray caskets, each bearing a floral wreath, were arranged in six rows for the ceremony. About 5,000 survivors, family members of the dead, reporters, and corporate officials attended the service. There were more than 500 homes destroyed and hundreds damaged, leaving 2,000 people homeless. The seaport was destroyed. Many businesses were flattened or burned. Over 1,100 vehicles were damaged or destroyed, and 362 freight cars were destroyed. At the time, property damage was estimated at $100 million. In the months that followed the explosions, Support for the city came from across the nation. Many fundraisers were done. Even celebrities like Jack Benny and Frank Sinatra performed in fundraising campaigns, generating thousands of dollars. The mayor appointed committees to administer the dispersal of the funds. Insurance companies had set up makeshift offices to begin processing claims from hundreds of people within the days of the disaster. At the time of the disaster, there were no government programs like FEMA to provide monetary aid to the disaster victims who lost their homes and possessions. U.S. Representative Clark Thomas of Galveston introduced legislation to Congress that would provide compensation to the disaster victims and to help them rebuild their town and their lives. The bill passed in 1955. It allowed about $17 million to be distributed to almost 1,400 claimants. Texas legislator also agreed to rebate municipal and school taxes in Texas City for three years following the disaster to stimulate economy recovery in the area. As a result of the disaster, new standards for the transportation and dispersal of ammonium nitrate was implemented. The new regulations required specialized containers for storage and prohibited it from being stored near other reactive materials. The transport over long distances and overseas was discouraged. I found a story during my research that was written years after the disaster. Bob Rotten was 13-year-old at the time of the explosion. He and some other kids were playing ball in a park about 25 blocks from the docks at the moment of the first explosion. He said, I was blown to the ground, shoved about 10 feet in the air, and before I could get up, and about that time I was on my feet again, the second blast happened, and that was at the Monsanto plant. It was almost as severe as the first one, and shrapnel was falling around me. Bob went home to find his mom and other neighbors setting up makeshift accommodations to help the wounded. He went with his father to help with the recovery efforts, but I had second thoughts after seeing a burned body. Many years later, Bob became the chief operating officer of the Monsanto Corporation. He says that the events of that day in 1947 were, will never be far from his mind. <laughs>
They changed how everybody thought of safety. It was much more important, much more professional, much more organized. Bob also said, your safety director was key to your management team. Of the industrial regulations that came about as a result of the disaster, Bob feels that they were stronger than they needed to be, but for good reason. He stated they erred on the side of extreme caution, and you can't go wrong with that. The Pemberton Mill collapse, Triangle Shirt Factory fire, and the Texas City disaster we talked about today are just three of several disasters that opened the door for the signing of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1907. This law led to the establishment of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA as we know it, and National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and the Independent Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Next week, I'll cover how OSHA came to be as it relates to the three workplace disasters I've talked about. Thank you for listening today. I hope you come back next week for the next story in this series. The stories I tell will be ever-changing from historical origins of many things and stories of people you may not know their history. And again, I'm Big Papa Rob, and this was Story Rewind, an independent podcast. Story Rewind is written and produced by Big Papa Rob, storyline edited by my beautiful wife, Amanda, a.k.a. Big Mama. If you would like to support my podcast, buy me a cup of coffee. The link is in the show notes or can be found in my social media links. I would very much appreciate the support. Today's music was powerful, stylish stomp rock by Mark July from Pixabay. This was a Big Papa Rob podcast, 2023.